This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Roundtable listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jonathan Gravel, one of your new rotating co-hosts, and I'm very happy to introduce my co-host today, Micah DeVries. Micah is not a clinician. She's a health service researcher who worked at Health Quality Ontario for the past five years and is now a PhD candidate at IHPME at the University of Toronto. So Micah, welcome to the show. You're definitely one of the first non-clinicians to host, so you know, no pressure. Wow, no pressure indeed. Thanks for inviting me to the round table. Okay, let's dive right in here. Micah, what article are you going to be telling us about today? The paper that I picked is titled Coronary CT and Geography and Five-Year Risk of Myocardial Infarction. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine earlier this month by a whole host of investigators from the Scottish Computed Tomography of the Heart Trial, abbreviated as the Scott Heart, with Newby as the first author. Before we get to the bottom line, Micah, any disclosures or conflicts from the authors or yourself? None for me personally, but I'll just note that the trial was primarily funded by the Scottish government's chief scientist office, the British Heart Foundation, and the Edinburgh and Lothian's Health Foundation Trust, as well as the Heart Diseases Research Fund. The funders had no role in the design, conduct, analysis, and reporting, though. Great, thanks. So what's the bottom line here? Well... This multi-center, randomized controlled trial of over 4,000 patients found that the use of coronary computed tomographic angiography, CTA for short, in addition to standard care in patients with stable chest pain resulted in a significantly lower combined rate of death from CAD or non-fatal MI at five years compared to standard care alone, without resulting in significantly higher rates of angio or coronary revascularization. That outcome's a bit of a mouthful, but I'm sure we're going to get into that. Why'd you choose this article? Well, first, CTA is not a cheap procedure, so understanding the long-term outcomes of the procedure would be really helpful in starting to understand the cost utility. And it's just interesting to me to take a look at a longer-term outcomes of a trial that had previously published on their results after a shorter follow-up period. Plus, another trial comparing CTA head-to-head with functional testing showed no significant difference in outcomes at about two years. Awesome. So tell me about the study design. So this study took place in 12 cardiology clinics across Scotland. It's described as an open-label, randomized, controlled, parallel group trial. Participants were recruited between November 2010 and September 2014, and follow-up was up until January 2018. And who were the study participants? They were patients 18 to 75 years old with stable chest pain, referred to an outpatient cardiology clinic by their primary care physician. Patients were excluded if they had severe renal failure, acute coronary syndrome within three months, a major allergy to iodinated contrast agent, or unwillingness to undergo the intervention, CT scanning, or if they were pregnant. These patients were randomized one-to-one to standard care plus CTA or standard care alone. The investigators used a minimization technique, which helps to balance out certain characteristics between the groups, so age, sex, BMI, that kind of thing, but I won't get into the details. And then information used in the management of patients' condition was at the discretion of the attending clinician, but physicians caring for patients in the CTA group were prompted to consider the results of the CTA in their management decisions, and patients in the standard care alone group were prompted to consider a pre-specified cardiovascular risk score called the assigned score. And for those that don't know, the assigned score is essentially just a score based on a number of baseline characteristics that seeks to identify people free of cardiovascular disease that are most likely to develop it over 10 years. Yep. Thanks, John. So they measured a number of outcomes. 
but the primary long-term endpoint reported in the study was the combined proportion of patients who died from CAD or had a non-fatal MI during a five-year period. Wow, so this trial followed patients for five years? Actually, no. There were no trial-specific follow-up visits for the patients, but instead these endpoints were captured using routinely collected data by the NHS in Scotland, including diagnostic and procedural codes. Oh, that's interesting. So essentially a trial and then linked to a large database thereafter. Correct. So tell me about what they found. So in the 4,146 patients followed for a median of 4.8 years, the rate of the primary endpoint, so dying from CAD or having a non-fatal MI, was lower in the CTA group than the standard care group. So 2.3% versus 3.9%. But from what I understand, that wasn't significant, right? Well, actually, and more importantly, using a Cox regression model, they did find a significant difference between groups with a hazard ratio of 0.59. Or put in another way, patients in the CTA group were 41% less likely to die from CAD or experience an MI. Although, for secondary outcomes, the rates of invasive coronary angio and coronary revascularization were higher in the CTA group than in the standard group in the first few months of follow-up, but overall the rates were similar at five years. And in terms of other secondary outcomes, they didn't find any difference in hazard ratios for a non-fatal stroke or death from any cause. So just to repeat that, essentially those in the CTA group were less likely to die or have a non-fatal MI. They were more likely to have invasive procedures done like angio or revasc, but that was only in the first few months. And at five years, the amount of invasive procedures done was the same in both groups. Anything, any interesting aspects of the study that caught your eye that you want to tell us about? Definitely. So first, the a priori primary outcome was a combined rate of death from CAD and non-fatal MI. But there weren't any significant differences between the rates of cardiovascular or non-cardiovascular deaths or deaths from any cause. So really, the difference was driven by the non-fatal MI rates at five years. The use of a combined outcome is an entire discussion on its own, so I won't get into that. The second thing that caught my eye was that during follow-up, patients assigned to CTA were more likely than patients assigned to standard care alone to commence preventive therapies like a statin or antianginal therapies. And we don't know why that is, right? Correct. We don't have the why. So I agree. This outcome is a bit hard to interpret. Likely longer follow-up to see what happens to the patients who had these non-fatal MIs is needed, but are there any other important limitations of the study that we haven't discussed? Yeah, this was an open-label trial, so ascertainment bias is inherent in the design. However, the primary long-term endpoint was composed of hard clinical events, death and MI, so this isn't such a worry. So for the non-epidemiologists listening there, Micah, what is this ascertainment bias? So that's knowing which group the patients were assigned to. Okay, I understand. Um, The author's interpretation of the results leans somewhat on hypothesis that patients in the CTA group made greater lifestyle changes than the standard care group. But this isn't something that was measured, lifestyle. Lastly, I'll just point out that the investigators didn't include anyone older than 75. So the effect of CTA may be even less in an older population where initiating preventive therapies may have less of an impact on clinical outcomes since preventive therapies like a statin really only reap benefits, say, 10 years out. So on balance, Micah, weighing the strengths and the weaknesses that we've talked about, what are your thoughts on this study? 
Well, this is a strong study. It's multi-center, well-powered, the design considered short and long-term outcomes. But like I said before, the combined outcome makes the interpretation quite challenging. Longer follow-up would be needed to know what exactly a reduction in non-fatal MI translates to. And Mike, in summary, who does this study apply to? Yeah, so the typical patient in the study were stable chest pain patients referred by their primary care physician to an outpatient cardiology clinic with a mean age of 57 years old, BMI of 30, 53% were smokers, 34% had hypertension, and 11% had diabetes. It's a lot of smoking. I know. So, Micah, if CTA leads to a significantly lower rate of non-fatal MI and death from CAD at five years compared to standard care alone, should all patients with stable chest pain get a CTA? Well, John, I'm not a clinician, but the author suggests that since the effect on the primary endpoint was similar across a range of subgroups, age, sex, um, non-inginal pain versus possible angina pain, diabetes, etc., perhaps widespread testing would be helpful. But this is the first study to look at long-term effects, so more research would be needed, and we'd want to look at comparing to standard care in the Canadian context to know if we can make that statement. I also think the economics of it would be important. I think uh, we'd also need to compare head-to-head to, say, stress echo instead of a combined group of standard care. Awesome. Thanks, Micah. Okay, John, you're up. What are we going to be talking about today? I'm going to be talking about an article by Driver Atal, published in JAMA in June 2018, titled Effective Use of a Bougie Versus Endotracheal Tube and Stylet on First Intep Intubation Success Among Patients with Difficult Airways Undergoing Emergency Intubation, a Randomized Clinical Trial, so named the BEAM Trial. Like I did before, I think it's important before we dive in to always mention any disclosures or conflicts, none from either of us, and only one reported by Minor, one of the authors, who has received grant funding from Securism Medical, which is an airway biotech company, but no funding went to this study. Okay, so beam us up, John. What's the bottom line for this article? Well, in this single-site RCT of 757 adults total... In the 380, with at least one difficult airway characteristic, bougie use resulted in significantly higher first attempt intubation than endotracheal plus stylet alone, with a difference of 96% with the bougie and 82% with the ET tube and stylet alone. Okay, so John, why is this important? Well, for most providers and in most settings, particularly in the emergency department, the bougie is a rescue device, and I can confidently say rarely used in first attempt intubation. That being said, it should be a device that we're comfortable with, at least if we're going to call it a rescue device. So I chose this article because it is the best evidence we have to date looking at bougie use in the first attempt. Plus, there is obviously a well-accepted and documented association between first attempt intubation success and a reduction in related adverse events. So any well-designed RCT that seems to, at least at first glance, increase first attempt success is worth an in-depth look. Okay, interesting. Tell us about the study design. When and where did it take place? So this randomized clinical trial was conducted from September 2016 through August 2017 in the ED of an urban academic level one trauma center with 109,000 annual visits called Hennepin Country Medical Center located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the study population? The study population was essentially any patient 18 years and older presenting to the ED who were to undergo intubation if the attending physician planned to use a laryngoscope blade either direct or video. I'll just note that all the intubations performed by either emergency physicians or emergency medicine residents with usually at least a postgraduate year three of training or higher. 
anyone assumed to be pregnant in patients with known distortion of the upper airway or glottic structures, angioedema, epiglottitis, laryngeal mass, or malignancy were excluded. Obvious question to ask here is, aren't these difficult airways? Why were they excluded? You're right, but since the bougie has been shown to be advantageous in these patients, it was considered to be unethical to include them in the trial. John, wait. In your bottom line, you said that results were in patients with at least one difficult airway characteristic, but they included everyone? Yeah, so the authors decided that querying the intubation physician, the intubating physician after intubation was necessary because it is not possible to ascertain all difficult airway characteristics before intubation. So, after completion of the procedure, the intubating emerged physician recorded whether any of the following difficult airway characteristics were present. Body fluid obscuring the laryngeal view, airway obstruction or edema, obesity, short neck, small mandible, large tongue, facial trauma, or cervical spine immobilization. And then patients with at least one of these characteristics were analyzed in the primary trial endpoint. Eligible patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio to oreotracheal intubation using either the bougie or, like I said, the endotracheal tube plus thiolet alone. Everything else to do with the intubation, so the patient positioning, the pre-exigenation strategy, the use of neuromuscular blockade, cricoid pressure, etc., um, was at the discretion of the emergency physician. So any difference between one intubation to the next was decided by the physician doing the intubation, apart from the choice of either bougie versus thylet and ET tube. I'm not a clinician, but can I assume that it's impossible to blind the intubators? Correct. Very correct, Micah. Obviously, because they're holding it in their hands. I think it's also open, important to note that many people like to preload their bougie, but the technique studied here, and therefore the technique with the best evidence base, is the classic technique. So intubate with just the bougie, and then load the ET tube over the bougie after it's through the cords. All right. Thanks, John. What were the main outcomes? The primary outcome was first in attempt intubation success. Secondary outcomes included hypoxemia, first attempt duration, and esophageal intubation. So what did they find? So first, I'll note that there was 51 unique emergency physicians who intubated at least one patient in the trial. A total of 380 patients of the total 757 enrolled and randomized had a difficult airway characteristic. 198 of them were randomized to bougie, 182 of them randomized to ET tube and stylet. First attempt intubation was significantly higher in the bougie group, 96% than in the endotracheal tube plus stylet group, 82% with an absolute between group deference of 14%. An analysis was done accounting for clustering by physician did not significantly change the study results. And what about overall, in all patients, not just those with a difficult airway? Among the study population as a whole, first attempt intubation success in the bougie group, 90%, was higher than the endotracheal plastile group of 87%, with an absolute difference of 11%. And important to note that there was no significant interaction between bougie use and presence of difficult airway characteristics on the outcome of first attempt success. The statistician in me um, noticed that the Kaplan, Meyer, and Cox estimates of time until first attempt intubation. Yeah, so they use those to look at the time. So not just the success of the intubation, but how long it took. And unlike prior studies, the bougie group might actually have been intubated a little faster if you look at those Kaplan-Meier curves. But this is a bit complicated because it's cumulative. So essentially, the shorter time was driven primarily by the higher rate of success. And if you look at it on its own, the bougie was a little bit slower as it usually is. What happened to the patients where the first attempt failed? Of the 56 patients in both groups who were not intubated on the first attempt, subsequent attempts were successful with the help of several rescue techniques including the bougie in 49 patients, using a laryngeal mask airway and a cricothiotomy in one patient. 
Any uh, observations you want to make about this study? I think it's important to draw attention to the fact that the first attempt rate of 98% in the bougie group, if you include both difficult and non-difficult airways, is like impressively high. The 87% in the Styler group would be more in line with most published trials on the subject. A fairly large meta-analysis published in 2017 by Park et al. looking at 42,000 ED visits and intubations reported first attempt success about 84%. Okay, wow. Are there any important limitations of the study that we haven't discussed? The big one, contrary to the study you told us about today, is that it's single center. And like you mentioned, the lack of blinding could also lead to other changes. Airway research is essentially always non-blighted, but after a physician sees what group they're assigned to, either the bougie group or the non-bougie group, they might have positioned patients differently, chose different induction drugs, or altered other aspects of the way they go about intubating. That being said, if you look at the table two in the paper, all the factors listed look very similar between the two groups. The other big issue, which a number of people have drawn attention to, is that this group has previously published work showing that the majority of intubations in their department utilize a bougie, about 87% in their last paper. Which, you know, would lead us to believe that studying bougie here would bias away from the null, as it did. But the authors address this by stating that the first attempt success, as I had mentioned, in the ET tube and stylic group compares favorably with success rates reported elsewhere. What about the post-intervention assessment? The epidemiologist in me wonders about bias. Totally. Probably influenced by whether or not the intubation was successful. If you were unsuccessful, you were probably more likely to report that it was a difficult airway which would lead the study towards the null. But any bias is likely mitigated here by the fact that the bougie was also better in the larger population, irregardless of a difficult airway or not. Okay, so balance this out for us. What are your thoughts? I think on balance, this is a good study. They did what they sought it to do and did it well. The biggest issue for me is that these people use the bougie more than any center I've ever been in and thus significantly impact the generalizability of these results. But with a 96% overall success rate in both groups, maybe they have a point. Okay, so what are the main learning points of this article? At the very least, I think this study should remind people that the bougie is a good device and having something as a rescue device if you haven't used it in a long time is a bit silly. Practice it maybe as a first attempt in simulation, get to know the device. Will this change the way you practice in this area? I think it actually might, especially as a trainee, probably a good time to get better with the bougie. Okay, so that brings our papers to a close, which means it's time for the good stuff segment. Micah, tell our listeners what you've been reading. Okay, a title that caught my attention was How Predatory Journals Leak into PubMed in CMAJ. Dun dun dun. Recent reports that PubMed, one of the world's leading biomedical databases, includes predatory journals and their publications is cause for concern. So these five authors give a good overview of what predatory journals are, highlight that there isn't a good watch list for them, but point out ways to spot them. They then describe the different policies that PubMed, PubMed Central, and Medline follow for including journals. And then they go on to suggest some criteria that PubMed could do or adopt to prevent these predatory journals from infiltrating. For me, this read was just a good reminder to stay aware of the persistent existence of predatory journals. This is rather insane and something you're going to continue having to deal with on your path to academia. But I agree, you know, all the more reason to pay attention to what we're reading and take a look a little bit about the journals, whether you have to pay to publish there, how long they've been around for. So yeah, thanks, Micah. What about you? What are you reading about? So I caught this great special communication in JAMA Internal Medicine. I think it was from July, titled Lessons from the Canadian Experience with Single-Payer Health Insurance Just Comfortable Enough with the Status Quo. 
It's written by a few uh, physicians in Toronto, actually, based out of Mount Sinai. And essentially, with single-payer universal health care or insurance on the political radar in the U.S., in both California, and as we've heard of frequently through the, the, the last election and now, federally within the Democratic Party, these offer, offer some lessons. If you're going to create a Canadian-like healthcare system from the ground up, based on the performance of the Canadian healthcare system during the last 50 years, we're really proud of our healthcare system. It has many strengths, such as the ease of obtaining care, effectiveness and safety roughly on par with many countries, and we spend much less per capita than the U.S. does, although much more than many other universal systems. We know this, though, but medicine has changed dramatically since the introduction of Medicare in the late 1960s, and the, the authors do a great job at summarizing the issues that the system faces. Changing things is hard. We all know that for those that work within the system. It's frustrating. Politically enacting substantial system-wide change carries a lot of risk. Anyways, I won't read the entire article. No bias. This is a really great read, and everyone should check it out. So that's it for today. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and thanks, Micah, for coming on as a uh, I'm not sure if you're the first, but at least one of the first non-clinicians to be on the Rounds Table. Well, thanks. It was an honor. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the rounds table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.